Welcome to the bridge. It's nice to see you guys. And we're really glad you've joined us this morning. Uh, you can tell that for a change, it's bright and sunny here. And uh, it certainly does make for feeling a little more cheerful. Um, we here um, in the Fraser Valley live on the traditional lands of the Stola, Kwatlin, and Semiamu people. And we don't have to look far into our, um, our world news these days to understand that living peacefully with uh, different layers of people who have lived in land over centuries can become contentious. And so uh, I feel particularly grateful today that we live in peace alongside our indigenous siblings. We're now gonna interview Fran and Peter. And I've already said their names. Can you guys unmute your um, screen? I don't know if you have already, maybe, but um, so in our... While testing, testing. <laughs> Good morning, Peter. <laughs> um, in our endeavor to connect better with each other, we've been doing short little interviews uh, since the new year. And um, it's quite interesting, actually, to kind of get just a little bit of a glimpse into people's lives and what matters to them. So um, I've, already, I've already said that their names are Fran and Peter. I'm pretty sure you can figure out which one is which. Um, but where do you guys live and who and what live in your home with you? Okay, we live in a condo in historic downtown Abbotsford. Uh, which is a new thing for us. We've been here for just over a year. And uh, after living in suburbia all our lives, it's quite a change. Uh, interesting change, good change. Uh, so it's the two of us that live here and our cat, Bean, <laughs> who's quite an elderly cat. And um, and then in our basement, <laughs> uh, two of our sons also live in this building, but on an, on another floor. So that's kind of interesting they just moved in two months ago I think so that's been fun that's really cool I love that idea we were the two youngest ones so they lived at home for uh, until how many years ago was that they moved out yeah 2017 I think yeah um, so okay. it's been quite a while that they we've been uh, living without them but now they're living in this building so it's kind of interesting I think if they were on an entirely different floor, I'd want to have my kids in the building too. But anyways, we'll go on. Um, how long have you guys been a part of our Sunday morning gatherings and how did you find us? It was actually, it was uh, Christine Baumhoff who mentioned that they were going to the bridge and really enjoying it. And so we thought we'd check it out on one of the Sundays that our own church didn't have a service. And actually the first time we came was that, I think it's October the 3rd, 2021, when you had the service of welcoming in the LGBTQ community. So that was really interesting for us and uh, yeah, very welcoming uh, just to be in an environment where you intentionally reached out and made sure these people felt included in every aspect of the church life. Lovely. Um, what brings each of you joy, like, or when do you feel the most joyous? Okay, I'll start. Um, I'm a people person, so I feel the most joy when I am with people. I don't have to be sort of center. I, I often like to just sit on the side and watch and just uh, I enjoy being a people watcher seeing people have fun together or in serious conversation or working or playing or whatever that brings me a lot of joy but especially when there's a lot of harmony and energy within within it yeah couldn't be better lovely how about you peter we have the unique situation that we have a very large family and um, 12 children and 
and uh, 28 grandchildren. And we're very, very blessed that they all live in British Columbia. The farthest away is Vancouver Island. And uh, I grew up in a large family. And uh, yeah, that's, I got enjoyment out of that. But also, um, I started working for my dad when I was 15 years old. And he was building the business. And I was part of that. And working with um, people in that way, I got enjoyment out of is, is being uh, assistant to my dad. I was the oldest son in our in our family, and started working for him when I was fifteen years old, and and uh, I got a lot of satisfaction out of doing that. Lovely. What would you like to be known for? I guess coming back to the people thing, I like to connect people and I people to people, people to ideas, events, whatever. Um, so yeah, relationships and uh, using that to live out our mandate of loving our neighbor. And you're really good at that, friend. Like you've You've opened my eyes to several things in the last while since you've been part of our gathering. And I just, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. How about you, Peter? What do you want to be known for? There's one thing that I learned from my parents um, very young in my life that what is the right thing to do? And um, that's also when we came to Canada and I was 13 years old and and for just one example, that we came in December, and uh, so we had to go to school, all of us, five of the eight kids had to go to school. And um, for my mom and dad, well, we had to go to a Christian school, and we were living in New Westminster, and there was no school in New Westminster. So we had to get on the bus and, and go to Vancouver to go to the Christian school. Now, of course, in, in the Netherlands, um, there was the... Uh, choice of going either to the public school or the Roman Catholic school or what they call the school with the Bible. So, but you didn't have to pay for any one of those of those. And so I also in the Netherlands when we went to the Christian school, right? And so that that was um, a beginning for us here in Canada that was made a lot of, and I've been very involved in in making sure that their young people, other than also our children, were able to go to to the right school to get the education that they um, that they needed. Yeah, you guys probably could have had your very own school, really, right? You could have just about had. <laughs> well, um, Fran, Fran did that one, and she had some other. People helping them, but uh, you know, I was. Uh, I homeschooled for ten. Years. But I was very involved yeah. in um, in the in the Canadian Reformed uh, School. I've been in, in school boards for fourteen years of my life, and and that was a big part. And and I was also very much involved in the early part when um, we were working with the government to get recognition because the independent schools were not recognized in British Columbia and I was very much part of that uh, 20 years I I was the representative to the society of, Korea, of uh, schools in British Columbia so wow that's lovely um do you guys have anything you would want prayer for yeah wisdom <laughs> there's so many things happening in our world today globally but also locally, and I just see there's a lot of uh, openness for change and new opportunities. And it's like, how do you best use and maximize those? Yeah, I, I'd pray for that for sure. And for me, this is a real, real challenge because we were brought up that, well, the Reformed Church God chose us, and so it was looking after us, if you will, and we didn't really have to worry about the community. 
And yeah, well, because we had our own business, of course, we also had to worry about the people that we were working with in our business. And it was a whole lot easier to, for me to do that than what Jesus has really, has really shown, uh, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And, and that's been a real challenge. Now I do volunteer driving for Archway and, and so they tell me which people that I should pick up and, and, and bring wherever they need to go. And, and that's still uh, something I enjoy doing. So. Yeah, um, I appreciate how you guys extend yourselves to the community on behalf of yourselves and, and Jesus too. And uh, I, I really see you guys as setting an example of how to spend yourself um, in your retirement years on behalf of those who um, really need to be cared for outside of the church walls for sure. So thanks, guys. Um, if you're ever seeing them, if you're at our live gatherings and you see Fran and Peter there and you'd like to follow up on some of the things they shared, please go and have a little chat with them. That'd be great. Um, now, <laughs> it's still me. I'm terribly sorry about that. Um, due to, to Karen um, not being able to talk without coughing, um, I will continue on, but very soon I will be leaving the screen. Um, we're going to enter into um, a Visio Divina this morning, and most of us are uh, kind of aware of how this works and, and what the point is. I love that um, Visio Divina is a way to listen with our eyes and that we're we're using more sensory um, options to um, to take note of things that are important in our lives. So, um, as we start, um, have a good look at this picture. Uh, notice the foreground, the background, the colors, the textures. And I'll just give you a little bit of time to silently have a look at that. So what are your eyes and or your heart drawn to in this picture? What's kind of being highlighted for you? And if you want, you can um, put what's happening for you in the chat, but you're not responsible to. Is there an emotion or a sense of something that comes up as you focus on that thing that is highlighted? Can you identify exactly what that sense is? And does that in any way relate to an experience you've had recently? And what are you being invited to receive from this? So I'm just going to 
go through some of the stuff that's in the in the chat. So the flower blooming outside of the fence, uh, a sense of freedom or breaking free from bondage, hope. And the delicacy and purity of the flower against the backdrop of the black fence posts. Beauty next to bars and wire, beauty growing in difficult places. Beauty cannot be constrained. The pink flower, how diversity makes everything more beautiful when viewed in unity. I'm drawn to the little pink flower. Even the little things are beautiful. A sense of freedom, of love and beauty from Jesus in all, in all circumstances. And it makes me see hope. It's interesting how much stuff overlaps, but also how you each saw something different from one photo. And um, I, I love how this kind of draws things out of us that maybe we weren't thinking about this morning um, or haven't thought about for a while, but now we are. And I appreciate that about being able to do a Visio or a Lectio Divina. So from here, we're going to move to um, Dave and Sherry, and um, they're going to lead us in communion this morning. But you can't stop. Good morning. So there's <laughs> Kathy and Lando and Kathy and Dave and Sherry. <laughs> Do I start? Oh. oh. Morning, everybody. Welcome to South Surrey, where we live. <laughs> this is our soup group. Yeah, our, <laughs> super, our super group. <laughs> so yeah, so we're going to do, uh, Sherry and I will do um, uh, communion today. And uh, so Sherry's just going to read off a, a bit of an intro to that. Right. So I just wanted to um, put a little bit of context because last time when we led communion, we forgot to uh, invite people to participate or not that, and heavy on the or not <laughs> and in the way that you'd like to. And that's the part. And just, you know, just recognizing that there were questions. There was a really good discussion after the last time we used the Apostles Creed and just wanted to acknowledge and celebrate that we do have an absolutely diverse community and everyone's in different parts of our journey, deconstructing, some reconstructing, some just coming through the door. Um, and then in some places, you know, it does require all the members to believe the same thing, but at the bridge, um, there's all kinds of space. Um, and people, whatever process you're in, what you're believing and why you believe it is absolutely fine. Uh, the other side of that, though, is we're also appreciating the traditions of the early church, the early church mothers, the early church fathers. And that includes a couple of creeds, uh, the Nicene Creed, which we're actually going to uh, say in a few minutes, and then the Apostle Creed, the one we shared last week. And um, just it helps to remind like what what that big group of people distilled uh, their what they could all agree on for the beliefs. And so <clears throat> as we read this creed this morning, it's the Nicene Creed from the Bridge website. Uh, listen for what feels comforting to you and what feels distressing to you. Um, you know, and just take that from where you want to, uh, whether you want to do processing or where you consider where you might be on your journey. And then if this Nicene Creed helps to set your faith within what the church, Big C, has believed over time, and if you'd like to do so, you're invited to join as we read it. So maybe we could read the Nicene Creed. And then following that is a confession of sin. So basically you're saying what you believe and then you're you're just confessing sin. That's the, the order. And then we were going to take some cracker or bread or whatever you have to eat and some coffee, tea, juice, whatever you might have um, for the uh, for the drink. Okay. So, um, so I'll just give you a bit of background uh, here on the Nicene Creed. Um, this is a statement of the Orthodox faith of the early Christian church. Uh, in its present form, this creed goes back partially to the Council of Nicaea, 
which was AD 325. And that says, with additions by the Council of Constantinople, AD 381. Um, I don't think Constantine was that great of a guy, so I'm not quite sure what he did. But <laughs> anyway, here we go. <laughs> uh, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father of all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, Begotten, begotten, not made, made of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for, for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. All right. And then the confession, confession of sin against God and against our neighbors or our family members. Uh, most merciful God. We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. All right. So if you had um take a cracker. Okay. We'll take the uh the bread and the wine now, so the, uh, the body of Christ broken for us and the blood of Christ shed for us. Thank you, Lord. And we do this in remembrance of what Jesus, when he ascended the throne, the cross. Right. Thank you. And um, just let this be asking God for understanding the revelation. That's for me as well. I, you know, um, I've heard in my whole time in church but I'm still seeking um, always for the revelation and what it means in the sense of um, the, the love and the cruciform, the, the giving of Jesus and just wanting to remember that um, every time we do <clears throat> communion, practice communion. Uh, and now maybe we all could pray for <clears throat> Bracera. Right. Yeah. So if anybody wants to lead, I'm happy about that. Jesus, I thank you for Sarah and uh, for her alive spirit and her vibrant love for you and for others. And I pray that you would um, continue to be with her today as she speaks to us and help us to hear particularly what you have in mind for each of us. Amen. Yes. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you guys for leading us.
Um, okay, so fun. Okay, my turn. Um, I uh, I'm doing a couple of groups right now, and so my brain is full of those things. So if you get crossover into all of that this morning, you're welcome. Um, let me start with a quote uh, from Gareth Higgins, who's written a short story with Brian McLaren called uh, Corey and the Seventh Seventh Story, Seventh something. Oh, shoot, can't remember. Anyway, this is a quote. If you want a better world, tell a better story. So I'm doing these two small groups right now. So my thoughts are all in there. One small group is reimagining faith development for our children and to some extent for ourselves too. And the other is a place of thinking about where creativity and activism collide or connect. Maybe that's better than collide. So yeah, there may be tangents. Um, and this thought was from the creativism group uh, last week. Tell a story about a world that you want to create rather than dwell in the story of a world that you would rather eliminate. I want to hear that again because it's good. Tell a story about the world you would want to create rather than dwell in the story of the world you would rather eliminate. And Jesus did this. Jesus has come to tell a better story. And it was the better story of the kingdom of God. And he told lots of stories. The Bible calls them parables because we always seem to have want to have to have clever names for things. But they are stories. And we are going to look at one of those stories today. Jesus didn't tell stories just to be confusing or just to be obtuse, although some of his stories are very confusing and quite a lot obtuse. Jesus told stories to speak in code, I think because of the times that he lived in. His stories had elements and images that would have communicated something specific to the people that he was talking to and hoping to communicate with. He used word pictures the way that we use symbols like these. Um, where he was trying to communicate something. We look at those symbols and we know what it means and we know what they, the story behind them. Um, and I wonder if Jesus used word pictures in the same way. And I wonder if that's maybe what's going on below the surface of the parables that Jesus told. Because some of them seem to be really inoffensive. But then sometimes someone will come along and say, hey, Jesus, no, stop, and try and throw him off a cliff. And we go, wait a second, I think I might have missed something there. Um, because the story appeared innocuous, but we're missing the undercurrent because we don't understand the subtext behind it. The fish symbol, you see this one right here, is interesting. Some believe that the early Christians used the fish symbol during persecution, um, for, uh, the persecution from Rome to hide their identities or gatherings in plain sight. We can't know this is true because time travel has yet to be invented, sadly, but it's a good story that they would use the symbol as a code to protect lives. I've heard that someone would draw the top half of the symbol, and then if that person they were talking to was safe, they would join up and join do the bottom half of the image. Today, there are stores and gathering places displaying the pride flag as a symbol of a welcoming space for the queer community. The symbol of the watermelon is being used as a symbol to communicate solidarity with Palestinians in the deadly war between Israel and Hamas. There are symbols and codes that we use in similar ways to the word pictures that Jesus used in stories. Jesus spoke in code because he lived in an occupied land as a person under occupation. His followers were hoping that he had come to overthrow them but he hadn't come to overthrow anyone. He'd come to start a revolution, sure, but it was a revolution of love and love even for your enemies. Jesus's stories were a cover to communicate clearly to some and in a more subtle way to others. You see, not only did Jesus live under occupation from the Romans, he was surrounded by a system within his own community that was also out to get him. The religious leaders of his day held all the power and Jesus's teachings often spoke against them and challenged their huge list of rules. They had this monster list that they developed even beyond the laws that Moses, that Moses had given them. And 
they felt like it was really important that everybody kept those laws because if there was um, the right amount of adherence to them, they could purify the nation so that the Messiah might come. And here he is standing right with them and they're not seeing it. Messiah, Jesus, creator sets free, which is what the First Nations version of the Bible calls him, was standing right there speaking, but they didn't see it because he didn't look or seem like what they were expecting. Jesus was doing something different. Jesus had come to start a revolution, but not the kind they were thinking of. Jesus's was a God loves you revolution. It's a God loves you revolution. I'm going to put it in speech box, underline it in bold. God loves you. And the outcasts and misfits were like, yes, let's get this party started. And the religious leaders were like, oh, no, you don't. Let's squish this thing before it gets off the ground. And then still others like the Roman, uh, the, like Nicodemus and maybe some of the Roman officials heard it and wanted to follow Jesus, too. And were like, huh, this is curious. I want to know more about how this works. But I digress a little. Let's look at the story. This is a story that Jesus told to a huge crowd um, with, as I've talked about already, people who were with him and people who were against him, all of them listening in. And because of that, it's a story in code. There are lots and lots and lots of ways to interpret parables. Many people have taken many different angles on this one. And I'm going to have a go again today. I'm not going to sure I'm going to have a new angle or I'm going to repeat somebody else's angle, but it's an angle and we'll just go with it. I am never, ever going to tell you that my reading is the definitive answer. Or the definitive version of anything, because I may not even agree with myself when I come back around and read this another time. I love the idea that the Bible reads me. And I'm never standing still. And so it looks different when it comes at me again. So let's read it and then we'll reflect on it and respond to it. You are welcome to use the chat um, if something jumps out to you, because it might help you remember it for later. And um, it also might help others see something that I've missed. If the chat irritates you, then ignore it. That's fine. Or try and ignore it. Um, because it may help those of us who are wired differently and need interaction along the way to help us, to help us pay attention. Okay, it's hard enough for me to pay attention when I'm talking, but if you're listening, pay attention. It might help you. It helps me. Okay, uh, should we go on? Rhetorical question, I'm going on anyway. Um, I am going to read this from the First Nations version today because it might give us a fresh pair of eyes on the story that I'm guessing you may have read a bunch of times and probably heard multiple sermons on. This is Mark 4, 1 to 20. And that's not it. This is it. Okay. Seed planter story. Creator sets free. Jesus returned to the lakeshore, and once again, a very large crowd gathered around him. They pressed in so close that he got a, into a canoe and pushed out a little way from the shore, while the people stayed at the shoreline. He then began to tell them stories to teach them about the ways of Creator's good road. Have you ever been on a beach and heard people playing music on a boat across, out, out way out on the lake, you'll know how well sound travels across water. It's a remarkable. Jesus knew this, and that's what he used. He got into the canoe or boat, pushed out from the shore so that his voice could travel across the water. Oh, you're welcome for the thumbs up, by the way. Um, he then began to tell them stories to teach them about the ways of creator's good road. I love that description of the good news. It makes the way expansive. It's a good way, and it's a good way for everyone. It makes it about the way we go. We are, like the early Christians described themselves, people of the way, going, being, living, walking, following on and in the way of Jesus, which is just a delightful picture. Let's go on. Okay, the story. Listen, Jesus said, a seed planter went out to plant some seeds and began to scatter them about on the ground. Some seeds fell on the village pathway, but people walked on them 
and the winged ones pecked at the seeds and ate them all. Some of the seeds fell on the rocks, where there was only a little dirt. The plants sprouted quickly, but when the sun came out, they dried up because the roots were not deep enough. Other seeds fell into the weeds, and thistles sprouted around the seeds and choked the life out of them. None of these plants grew for harvest. But some seeds fell on good ground, grew strong and gave a harvest of 30, 60, and even 100 times as much. Then he said, let the one who has ears hear the meaning of this story. I think that last line is a joke. I think he's talking about the harvest, you know, like ears of corn. Let the one who has ears. Anyway, sorry. Um, but why Jesus? Why talk in stories? And why not talk plainly? He's not talking to farmers, although some of them might have been. And if he was talking to farmers, that is not good advice for farmers. Um, he was talking to fishermen and tax collectors and other people. And then there's the crowd who are who knows what kinds of people. And even still standing around the outside, the Romans and the religious leaders, those who were trying to trap him. I think this is the reason for the riddles. It was dangerous to speak plainly. So imminent danger might have been one reason. Another reason might have been that, like Jesus told his mother, this is not my time, mum, when she asked him to sort out the issue with the wine at the wedding. I don't know for sure why he spoke like this, but we aren't the only ones wondering why he talked in riddles. This is what Wilder Gaffney's version says in the next few verses. Now, when Jesus was alone, those women and men who were around him, along with the 12, asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the mystery of the majesty of God. But for those outside, everything comes in parables in order that they look well, but do not understand. Listen well, but do not comprehend so that they may not turn again and be forgiven, which is Isaiah 6. I'd love to understand the mystery of the majesty of God, wouldn't you? The First Nations version says, To my close followers, the honour has been given to understand about the mysterious ways of Creator's good road. You folks, my friends, Jesus says, I will talk to direct directly, but to everyone else, particularly those maybe out to get me. They're going to hear the truth through stories and hopefully they'll get it, but maybe they won't. Why would Jesus people want people to look but not understand or to listen but not comprehend and then not turn and be forgiven? Why would he want that? I don't have a good answer for that, but I wonder if it's for the benefit of the religious leaders who would maybe get the context. In those last three lines, Jesus is quoting Isaiah 6, uh, verses 1 to 10. Oh, that's verse 10, just that look well, but do not understand. Why did he quote Isaiah? Maybe there are those in the crowd who would get that context because they'd read the scroll in the synagogue. Is he talking to them? Listen, you lot, pay attention to the stories that I'm telling and the wider context of what I'm quoting. Back in Isaiah, it says, Isaiah heard the voice of the thundering God saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Jesus is saying to those with ears to hear, look at me. And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. And I feel like Jesus is practically standing up in the boat and waving at them. He's going, here I am over here. Look, it's me. And God said, go and say this to this people. Listen well, but do not comprehend. Look well, but do not understand. Close off the heart of his people and stop their eyes and blind stop their ears and blind their eyes, so they may not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Man, this is mysterious. Jesus changes to be to be healed, to be forgiven. But this is what he's quoting. And maybe it was for their benefit, and we don't get it. I don't get it. Everyone else, though, was like, Why are you telling stories, Jesus? What does this one mean? Now, this parable comes with a rare interpretation from Jesus himself. But from where we stand, which is many years beyond his time, in a very different place, far away, away from where and when he lived, it could still seem somewhat bewildering. Let's go back to the First Nations version. So this is Jesus's explanation of his own story. If you do not understand this story, then how will you understand any of my stories? He answered. The seed in this story is the message about creator's good road. 
The village pathway represents the ones who hear but do not understand the message. Accuser, Satan, the evil trickster snake sneaks up and snatches it away from them. The rocky ground represents the ones who hear and receive the message with a glad heart, but because they have no roots, their faith is shallow and doesn't last. As soon as the message brings them trouble or opposition, they stumble and lose their way. The weeds and thistles represent the ones who have heard the message, but they're too busy worrying about their earthly existence. This makes them stray away from the good road, wanting more and more possessions, thinking this will make them happy. The message is choked and their faith stops growing. The good ground represents the ones with good and pure hearts. When they hear and understand the message, they hold on tightly to it until it grows into a harvest 30, 60, and even 100 times as great. The different types of soil are sometimes talked about as if they were the state of our hearts. And what if we think about them rather than being the state of our hearts, but actually the situation that we're in? I have heard this story many times and longed to be good soil. I want to be receptive. I want to be productive. I want to be a good steward and so on. It has been taught that to be anything less than producing at a hundredfold means there is something wrong with you and you need to go and sort yourself out. No, make it stop. This could potentially load on a bunch of guilt and a false sense of having to have it all together. And I'm sure it's not very helpful. Because, and I underline and italicize this, we are good. But we aren't always in the best situations possible because sometimes life is just stupid hard. Let's stop thinking about soil for a second and think about seasons. Is there a season for the seed to lie dormant in the ground? Absolutely. There are months of nothing much happening. On the surface, it's all going on underground. And actually, even then, there's a whole bunch of time where there's nothing going on underground either. There is dormancy. There's a whole lot of nothing happening. That is part of the seasonal cycle. Sometimes there is nothing going on. Is it harvest time all year round? Nope. Of course not. And then, okay, let's think about harvest. If it is harvest time, can a harvest fail, even if a farmer does everything right? Yes. A sudden blight, an attack by insects, an inopportune flood in the wrong season, a drought, and so on. Yes, even if the farmer does everything right, a harvest can fail. And then, do plants grow along a path? Do plants grow behind wire like we saw in that picture, even if it's bindweed, which is what that picture is. That bindweed is invasive and it's a bugger if you want to try and get it out, but it's beautiful if we want it. Do they grow where we don't want them to? Yes. Do things grow in weird and wonderful places? Yes, they do. Look at this tree. See this one? That tree is growing anyway. It is growing on a cliff edge over the edge of the Fraser River as it forces its way through the canyon. The second picture, I zoomed in a little bit, shows where the tree fell, right? This is where it fell. And then it went, oh, whoops, I'm falling. I'm going the wrong direction. I need to grow this way. So it turned and it went back and it grew up. It grew for the light. Trees, plants, animals, people, they all want to grow. And many will do so in the most inopportune places and inhospitable places. Is this good soil? Nope. Is it growing anyway? Yes. We don't need to be constantly productive, <laughs> she says to herself. Um, we don't need to have the hundredfold or nothing attitude to all of this. Take the seed of good news that you have and grow. Grow where you are. Even if you're in a very rough spot like my friend the tree and you are clinging on by your fingernails on the edge of a cliff over water that if you fell into it would mean the end of you, take the good news about Creator's Good Road because it's a good way to walk 
and grow anyway. Okay, if it's Jesus who is scattering the good news, then he is indiscriminate. We might even say careless. This is not good use of seeds. He scatters them everywhere. Jesus is a lavish seed sower. The seed goes every which way and falls in good and less than ideal places. He doesn't pick it up and re-sow it. He leaves it where he scatters it, because even there, you never know, it might just grow. Jesus scatters good news with abandon because Jesus is the good news. And that is good news. Now that I'm getting towards the end of this, um, where I try and pull this all together and come up with a takeaway or application, um, I was thinking in the back of my head about the book that we're reading on Tuesday nights. Um, it's a book called Woven, and the chapter we're reading this week is about the Bible, literally. That's what the title is, of the chapter is. Meredith Miller shows us that there are basically two schools of thought when it comes to teaching kids about the Bible. Um, and I would say teaching grown-ups too. This is what she says. One emphasizes biblical information, knowing not only the plot of the Bible stories, but the details, often accompanied by an emphasis on scripture memorization. So that's the first type. The second type, the other major perspective emphasizes biblical application, telling a child how the Bible, how the principle of a Bible story should be lived out in various everyday situations. The first way puts all the emphasis on cramming as much knowledge as possible into the heads of kids so they don't go wrong. The second presumes they are already wrong and need to do this to follow, need to follow this example so that they can go right. For example, Abraham, follow Abraham, who was faithful. Follow Esther, who was brave. Be like Joseph, who was patient. And apply the Bible to your lives in such a way. It puts the humans in the center of the story, not God. Puts the humans in the center and gives the kids the takeaway, I should be faithful, I should be brave, I should be patient, or basically, I should be a good kid. And apply that to grown-ups. We go, oh, I should be brave. I should be patient. I should be gentle. I should be all those things. I should be a good Christian. Or to put it in the context of today's passage, I should be good soil. But she writes, the point of the Bible is not to provide principles, but to tell the story of what God is doing in the world. Real, regular humans are important characters in the story, yes, but God is the central character throughout so I am reluctant at this point to tell you what to do or to give you one application of this passage because we have arrived together at the part where we start to think about walking this out on the good road with Jesus. Jesus is the center of the story. It's about the good news seed that he is sowing and he scatters that stuff no matter what situation it is received in. Let's go back to Jesus's own explanation of his story. The seed in the story is the message about creator's good road. The village pathway represents the ones who hear but do not understand the message. Accuser, Satan, the evil trickster snake, sneaks up and snatches it away from them. The rocky road represents the ones who hear and receive the message with a glad heart, but because they have no roots, their faith is shallow and doesn't last. As soon as the message brings them trouble or opposition, they stumble and lose their way. Or, like my friend the tree, they just grow anyway. The weeds and thistles represent the ones who have heard the message, but they are too busy worrying about their earthly existence. This makes them stray away from the good road, wanting more and more possessions, thinking this will make them happy. The message is choked and their faith stops growing. The good ground represents the one with good and pure hearts. When they hear and understand the message, they hold on tightly to it until it grows into a harvest 30, 60 or even 100 times as great. So what do I learn about God in this story? If God is the central character, I can see that God is generous because God is an equal opportunity seed sower. Right? He doesn't care. He's just scattering that seed anyway. What do I learn about the ordinary humans following him? All of us. We could be in a metaphorical hard place, walking a hard pathway. Still, he has good news for us. And the good news is, 
he gives us himself. We could be in a metaphorically hard place, feeling like life's a bit rocky. Feeling like, I don't know what bits of my faith to keep or what, and it's all just, who knows? Still, he has good news for us. And the good news is himself. We could be in a place where we're concerned about all the things. And still, he has good news for us. And the good news is, he gives us himself. We could be in a metaphorically open, receptive and well-nourished state of mind and heart. Anyone? <laughs> no. Um, I mean, true, and we can aim for it, but there's always things, right? But still, he has good news for us. And the good news is, he gives us himself. Jesus is boundless generosity. And with this story of the message about Creator's Good Road, he is showing us he is boundless generosity along every kind of which way. I would like to invite us to take a few minutes to do a quick write in response to this. If you have paper and pencil nearby you, um, or you could take a note on your phone or uh, write on the wall or whatever seems appropriate. And we'll give you three minutes. Okay, and this is the question. So basically, where are you at? What is your place or metaphorical situation like? And go. And another question. What would you like from Jesus? Or what is the good news that you need? Can take either approach at that it's basically the same question but what would you like from jesus or what is the good news that you need and let me pray and we'll just finish this up creator you are generous and you are kind you liberally scatter the good news and sometimes we're in a good place to hear it and other times not so much but you give and you give yourself anyway it doesn't depend on us and our receptivity it is all about you and your generosity, and for that I'm very grateful. It feels like a huge relief and permission to be where I am and to be myself as I am, fearfully and wonderfully made in your image. Amen. Um, I have a last thought. I read this today uh, in the Centre for Action and Contemplation daily email, uh, and it's um, it says, we must honour the infinite mystery of our own life's journey to recognise God in it. Or is it the other way around? It seems that God is not going to let us get close unless we bring all of ourselves in love, including our brokenness. That's why the good news really is good news. Nothing is ever wasted. That was like, thank you very much. That's a good summation and on with the show.